Sveiki. Šiandien mokslas rūpos tiesioginioje transiracijoje svečias iš užsienio. Organizminės kompeterijos pasaulyje pradininkas, žmonių kompeterijos instituto e, ir pliečių mokslo projekto Aizo On ALZ e, įkūrėjas e, dr. Pietro e, Mikelučių. Ir šiandien kalbėsime apie būtent jo e, projektus tiek e, apie žmonių skaičiavimą, naudojant žmonių skaičiavimą ir pradėsime klausimus anglų kalba. Ok, so uh, I know that you work on a human computation. So could you describe what it is and why does it matter? Mm. Uh, it's <clears throat> so human computation is, um, is about creating partnerships between humans and machines. Uh, in order to solve problems that neither humans alone or machines alone can solve. Uh, so, um, you know, there's this uh, this difference in the capabilities of, of what machines can do and what humans can do, and we want to play to those different strengths and combine them in the right ways. And usually we think about it in terms of these distributed systems using the Internet to connect people and, and other computing systems together. Um, so uh, as far as uh, why it matters, um, So uh, I think there's a lot of interest today in artificial intelligence technology and, um, and machine learning um, has become very popular. And of course, machine learning has been around for a long time, but um, more recently, um, <clears throat> uh, I think um, what's happening is we're starting to reach certain speed thresholds with, with raw computing speed that uh, makes it more practical to use machine learning. And, um, and this has added some excitement. There have been a few um, new capabilities um, developed in machine learning, convolutional neural networks, and, and, and some other approaches. Uh, but I think fundamentally, you know, the, the, um, the reason people are starting to get more excited is, again, due to this uh, increase in computing speed. But I think we're, um, uh, while we're seeing some more practical applications of machine learning and, 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 and AI more generally, um, the, the, the speed at which these technologies are, are accelerating might not be exactly what we perceive them to be. And particularly, if the hope is for um, artificial general intelligence, that's the way we refer to the kind of AI that's more like the way a human thinks that as we get closer to these sort of uniquely human capabilities, um, like uh, uh, abstract reasoning and um, um, the knowledge we gain from our experience in the world and creativity, these things I think are going to be increasingly harder to achieve with AI. Doesn't mean it won't eventually happen, but I'm not sure it's as soon as some people think it will be. But at the same time, we have um, We have challenges today that we've never had to face before. Many of them are of our own making. Um, so, um, um, you know, the question is, can we address these challenges, um, geopolitical conflict, pandemic crises, um, um, climate change, before they destroy us? And, uh, I mean, it's... Um, 
you know, we, 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 we can talk about it sort of as an apocalyptic thing, but, but the signs are there. And, um, and it isn't clear that if we're trusting in computers to become super intelligent and save us in time, that, um, um, you know, that, that we'll win that race. So the why it matters is uh, about human computation, is, is really about seizing the opportunity to take the kind of capabilities that artificial intelligence has not yet been able to produce directly from humans and, and allowing them to contribute to computational processes um, so that when you put them together with machines, we're actually already achieving new capabilities, the kind that we hope that AI might be able to do alone someday, and hopefully address some of these really challenging problems. Okay, so returning back to human computation, so could you give examples of real-life uh, human computation systems? Mm. So um, I think today um, we're, we're sort of just uh, at the tip of the iceberg in terms of what's possible, but even this, this tip of the iceberg has, has accomplished some, some real-world um, Uh, capabilities and and solve some real world problems. So, uh, one example of this uh, is um, is this actually a project uh, that uh, uh, we're working on right now at the Human Computation Institute um, with some other uh, partners, including Cornell University and and uh, UC Berkeley and Princeton was involved and SciStarter uh, uh, and and um, um, Wired differently. It's a real consortium. So um, these these kinds of systems. Uh, often require lots of different sorts of disciplines to come together. So the problem we were trying to solve is, um, is, is related to Alzheimer's disease research. And um, so uh, our, our collaborators at Cornell invented a new way of collecting data, looking at mouse models of Alzheimer's disease. So these are mice where you've taken Um, the human gene for Alzheimer's, you, you insert it into the mouse, and the mouse develops with a disease and, and manifests all the different um, uh, uh, symptoms of the disease, the memory loss, depression, um, and, um, and eventually they even manifest the physiologic symptoms, like the, the characteristic plaques that, that show up post-mortem in the brains of Alzheimer's patients. So, so um, uh, there's always the question when you use animals, you know, is this a valid model of human version? And, um, and I, I'm not sure I could answer that, but it's so far, um, uh, it's being used in a lot of Alzheimer's research. And these folks have figured out a new window into the brain of mice that allows them to visualize through layers of brain tissue in vivo, in other words, the mouse is still yes. alive uh, and it's, it's asleep and comfortable during this process, um, and it doesn't harm the mouse in any way, but it allows us to look at the blood flow in the brain of the mouse. And the reason we care about this is because one thing that's been known about Alzheimer's disease since we've known about Alzheimer's disease is that there's reduced blood flow in Alzheimer's patients, like 30 to 50% less blood flowing and Uh, but we've, we, we've never understood why. So the Cornell folks are investigating this and they created this new technique to look into the brain. And it generates data in the form of these videos of blood flowing through these blood vessels. Yes. Uh, but in order to answer the research questions, we need to look at each individual capillary in this blood vessel network. It's a very extensive network. Um, in one imaging session, you might have 1,500 vessels 
and you need to collect many imaging sessions for many different mice for one experiment. So um, to answer a single research question, it required several laboratory technicians um, to analyze the data for a period of a year. So one research question, an entire year, that's a, that's a glacial pace when it comes yes. to scientific research. So uh, our idea was if we could somehow turn this kind of data analysis into an online game that anyone could play, then, um, then we could distribute the labor. If we could have thousands of people playing the game um, and analyzing the data, then we could get potentially to an answer to these research questions much faster and hopefully to an actual treatment target much faster. So what does this have to do with human computation? Um, so we're dividing up labor among lots of different humans. And the question is, why are we using them in the first place? Why don't we just have an AI system or a machine learning system analyze these data? Wouldn't that be faster? It would be faster. And you know, you add more processors, and it gets even faster. And we've actually tried that. Um, in fact, ethically, it's the first thing we have to try whenever we consider a human computation system, because we wouldn't want to ask people to do something that machines could do. Uh, and um, uh, the machines actually got about 85% of them right, which was not enough for the research requirements of the, the Cornell researchers. Um, humans get about 99.9% .9 of it right. Um, but that's the expert humans. So, um, so we realized that we, we needed to create this, again, this machine-human partnership. And in this case, the question is, well, what's the machine doing? I mean, you've got the internet connecting all these people and letting them play the game. Well, the machine's doing what machines do very well, which is keeping track of things. Who's analyzing what? Which pieces go back together after we get the analysis? It's actually some very simple stuff. But there's also um, a slightly more interesting part to that, uh, which is that it's the question of how do we trust um, a volunteer who we don't know and who could be a, a malicious actor, <laughs> could be someone's cat accidentally hitting the keyboard. How do we know that these are valid scientific data? So in these kinds of um, participatory systems where we're, we're crowdsourcing some kind of classification, um, making, you know, the crowdsourcing, making a decision between two things, for example, in our case, it's whether a blood vessel is flowing or it's stalled, then um, we combine many answers about the same blood vessel. So you, we might have 20 people look at, at the same blood vessel. Everyone does something like voting about it. And so if one person's having a bad day or, or one person isn't uh, the person we think they are or, or, or somebody is having a beer in the afternoon, um, we can combine all those answers and with a certain amount of confidence, know that the crowd answer is going to be like that of, a, of an expert. Um, and of course, we validate this. So um, you know, we, we, before we would take real research data and generate a research result that would be used by the Cornell Laboratory, we first had to make sure that, that this would work. Um, so um, yeah, I, I think that, so that's, that's how, an example. How can people join this project? Can like anyone be a part of it? or? Yeah, I, uh, so I mean, there there are very few limitations. Um, I think you know you need to be able to see and uh, and basically work with a, a, a laptop, a tablet, or a, it can even be played on a mobile phone. We've had children as young as five or six years old playing often better than their parents. Uh, we've had um, 
you know, the the um, the retired population, aging populations, are of course very interested in the game um, uh, because it um, either they perceive it to be a that Alzheimer's disease to be a, a potential issue for them, or they more often know somebody uh, have a family member. Um, and we, you know, I think some of our more prolific players are in their in their 80s, spending hours a day um, actually helping to accelerate this this research. So in what way human actu humans can actually uh, be better than machines when like using machine learning? W mm -hmm. What is the like, key difference why, why people are better? This is, um, this is a very interesting and, and, and sometimes challenging uh, concept, uh, I think. Um, so I'll, I'll give you an example uh, taking from this, this Alzheimer's disease project. Um, so when the computers get 85% of it right, then the question we ask is, why are they getting the other 15% wrong? And um, when you look at some blood vessels, it, the, the image might be blurry or there might be, uh, it might be kind of ambiguous whether it's flowing or stalled. So then you might need to ask some questions and do some reasoning about that. So you say, well, what about the blood vessels that are connected to it? Are they flowing? So if you imagine that you have um, one blood vessel and you can't decide if it's flowing or not, and you see that it's connected to two other vessels, one of which is stalled, which means not flowing, and the other which is flowing, then the only way that other one can be flowing is if it's going somewhere. And it's so, so that helps you answer that question. And you couldn't do it just based on the pixels. You know, and a lot of machine learning algorithms um, operate this way. They operate at the pixel level. So, um, so in this case, it's this complement of, um, of the machine kind of rendering the images, giving images to people and collecting them. And then the human component here is the ability to go beyond just the pixels and reason about what they're looking at. Um, you know, so an, another uh, aspect to all of this, uh, sort of a more general principle is, has to do with, you know, where computers came from in the first place. Why did we create computers. Uh, it's not because we couldn't think. Um, I mean, when we created calculators, there was a reason for that. It's that calculators do a kind of thinking that we're actually not very good at. They, um, they can do very rapid arithmetic. Um, even the very s simple transistor-based calculators um, um, can, can add you know, or multiply or divide nine-digit numbers um, instantly, uh, at least from our perspective. So. Um, and, and, and they're designed much differently. At a fundamental level, the architecture of a calculator is different than the architecture of the brain. And in fact, that architecture is optimized for doing arithmetic and, and simple computation. Um, and the computers of today evolved from that. You know, we, we, we created more complex processors, but ultimately it's about following a procedure, executing that procedure um, quickly and accurately. So these are things humans don't do well. I am, you know, when someone gives me instructions to do something. Somewhere along the way, I usually fail. Um, so thank goodness, thank goodness for the machines. So the reason this is important is that when you talk about artificial intelligence and what we're trying to do with that, what you're really talking about is taking a, fundam a, a fundamental architecture that's designed around this kind of numerical-based computing and then sort of making it do something it was never originally designed to do, which is to think more like a, a, a human. Um, 
So in just the same way that it's very challenging for us to, for example, multiply large numbers together instantly in our brains, um, it's very challenging for a counting system to actually start thinking like a human. Uh, and, and I think that um, this is, at a very basic level, why it's taking us so long to get machines to think more like humans. So continuing on, on this topic, uh, is there any advice you could give to people working on technical side of artificial intelligence and or which way to explore uh, the topic? Mm -hmm. Right. So I, I think the question that I would ask, if I were an AI researcher, and I actually do think of human computation as a, a branch of AI, um, uh, we, we joke in the field that human computation is artificial, artificial intelligence. Um, so I, I, I would look at a, at a problem and say, if I can't find a completely automated solution to this problem, um, then the next thing I would think about is, is there some step in this process, some place where inserting a human would be a quick fix for this problem? Then we look at the system and we say, okay, are we already deriving more value than what we could get from a human or machine alone? If not, or even if we do, does observing the behavior of the human in this system help inform how we might construct a, an automated component that could, that could take the place of the machine? So an interesting thing is that we're, we're kind of doing exactly that in the Eyes on Al's project because we have um, you know, this crowdsourcing platform today, the citizen science platform where people can play the game, learn about the disease, and accelerate the research. Um, but if there's an opportunity to um, have the machines do part of that labor and offset the work of the humans, we'd like to do that. So our next step involves finding out if we can train machine learning algorithms not only to classify vessels, but to know um, which vessels they've actually classified accurately or not. So we'd be happy if we could get a machine learning algorithm, which, as we know, can classify at a 85% at a accuracy, to do that for 10% of the vessels or 5% of the vessels and tell us which ones it's very confident about, the, sort of the very simple vessels where it's clear it's either flowing or stalled, a human could do it in their sleep. But if we can get the, the machine learning algorithm to do it, then that's 5% fewer vessels that the humans need to take care of. And then over time, you can imagine that we would be able to build more sophisticated versions of that. And ultimately, the goal would be to pull the humans out of that loop so that we can then just you know, turn up the, the processing speed on the computers and, and have it all done magically for us. So we got one question uh, which was recently submitted. So what is, your, uh, what is expected duration of uh, Eyes on Al's project? Hmm, it's a, it's a great question. Um, so, uh, so in terms of the, the Alzheimer's-related research, uh, um, which is what, what we're focused on exclusive, exclusively right now, uh, we've identified approximately, um, so based on the, the kind of experimentation that we think would lead to uh, a, a prospective treatment, we're looking at analyzing approximately 15, well, I should say 1.5 million blood vessels in the crowdsource system, and keeping in mind that we're having more than one person look at each one of those 1.5 million vessels. Um, we think that with about 30,000 people playing the game, so we have about 5,500 people playing today, if we can get up to about 30,000 people playing the game, then instead of 
um, answering those research questions in 20 to 30 years, we might be able to answer them in two to three years and hopefully get to a treatment target in that time. Yeah, so another question is, uh, again, from, from other people. So what is the, uh, the future of people computation? Is it like just a kind of temporal uh, replacement for machines or or it can be somehow uh, used together or... Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, it, it's hard for anyone, I think, to, to, to um, completely predict the future, but I, I, it's a question I think about a lot. And um, as I said, I, I, I think it's going to be longer uh, than my prediction for how long it will take for AI to get to human-like intelligence is probably farther out than, than, than many other uh, people who think about this. Um, and so I imagine that humans will be involved in the computation increasingly over time, but in different ways. Um, as these systems evolve, I think we'll tap into those more interesting kinds of um, cognitive contributions that people can make. A lot of crowdsourcing today involves just using the perceptual apparatus. I mean, it's kind of like it's, it's the low-level part of our brains that you know, dogs and cats have, and mice have, and and and, uh, um, but there 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 are many more interesting things in our cognitive abilities that I believe we could tap into. So um, so I guess at least you know in the foreseeable future, as far as I'm concerned, that that's the direction we're going to move. And and it's it's not a bad place to go in the sense that that um, you know people are are concerned that AI is going to take everyone's jobs away. But we look at the Industrial Revolution, and, and basically we just we created a new, different kind of job that's more interesting. And I, and I think and hope the same thing will happen now um, with this movement, which is that um, people will, will be asked to engage in systems to solve big problems, but at the level of, of coming up with new ideas, and then how do we combine those ideas, and, and um, you know, is this related to this other thing and making conceptual connections and, and you know, the things that I think um, tend to be more intrinsically interesting to people. So I'm, I'm hopeful that, uh, um, you know, our brains will be used in, in more satisfying ways. Okay, another question we got is slightly related to actually uh, what we dis were discussing some time ago. It was uh, about Google DeepMind um, AlphaGo uh, progress. So what do you think about uh, the progress? And uh, it kind of sounds as an end of pe uh, people computation uh, to the person who wrote. But oh, actually, another thing which I, I actually checked uh, today. So there are uh, different rules for, for Go. And mm. there is one type where you can spend as much time as you want for thinking. Aha. OK. <laughs> oh, well, thanks for looking into that. that. Yeah, that was an interesting conversation we had. So. So just following up on that, um, uh, so, so there's this result. You know, AlphaGo is um, uh, better than average person for sure. Better than the average person. It's a computerized platform. This was a, a, a tough nut to crack because yes. so so we had Deep Blue, the IBM computer that eventually beat Kasparov, and um, not as surprising because you know with the increasing in computing power, eventually you could brute force. That solution, you could look at all the po you could eventually look at all the possible moves with fast enough and, and and computers with enough memory and so on. Go was trickier because the search space when you're trying to say what's my next best move, um, you have to search through many more combinations. In fact, 
there's an explosion of possibilities without looking too many moves ahead, which meant that even the very fastest computers would take hundreds of years to to play Go effectively that way. So what the uh, the AI researchers did is they said, well, you know, wh what is the human advantage here, and how can we try to replicate that? And the human advantage in these kinds of uh, tasks tends to be the ability to rule out options that don't matter very quickly, to narrow the search space. So I, I know I never need to consider this you know, 10 quadrillion moves because it's not going to lead me anywhere. Are we always right? No. But it tends to be an efficient way when, when you can never exhaustively look through the ability to eliminate potential mistakes uh, quickly. Um, is, is very powerful. So they, they said, well, what, what kinds of strategies are humans using to eliminate these other possibilities? And they built that into their, their AI architecture. So now they, um, they kind of got into that sweet spot of we can use the brute force, but only on the, um, the next moves that would make sense to a human um, insofar as they're able to capture that uh, in their AI algorithm. So I'm actually quite interested in the idea of building a human computation system to play Go. In other words, okay, you know, humans were the best until very recently. AlphaGo um, now appears to be the best Go player, which is a machine-based system. Now, what if we combine humans and machines? We have lots of machines and lots of humans. Um, and I'd be even more interested if we didn't take the most expert Go players. Let's take average Go players and have them all participate in the system and see if we can build a kind of collective intelligence that um, that taps into the machine's ability to remember moves from other games, be a resource to the humans who are playing the game, let the humans do the creative input, and um, and then uh, you know pit that system against AlphaGo and, and see what happens. Okay. So, uh... Yeah, but slightly unrelated question now. So I, I know that you have slightly unconventional ideas about how science should work. So uh, it's kind of similar as control, uh, uh, version control system, uh, often used by programmers. So can mm -hmm. you tell more? Yeah, I guess that's exactly what it is, in, in, uh, in, at least in some ways. So, right. Um, so the way we do science today, um, and it, I think it's becoming increasingly automated in some ways, is, is um, you know, we follow a, a, a process. Science um, is sometimes described as having sort of a, an existence of its own, a life of its own. But, but um, when it boils, what, what it boils down to, I think, is that science is really um, um, an agreed upon method of, of doing things um, that... Um, is reliable in in um, quantifiable ways in helping us develop um, a faithful model of the physical world, and the reason we do that is that that having that very uh, that, uh, increasingly better models of the world allows us to solve problems and make predictions about what's going to happen next, and and figure out more easily whether a candidate solution to a problem will work. So so it's. I think it's helpful to think about why do we do science? Apart from our, our natural curiosity as human beings to understand the world, there's a very practical benefit to it. And um, so because science tends to be a process and it's a well-defined process, then we can automate much of that process um, and alleviate the burden of, um, of being a steward of that process from the scientists uh, and allow them to 
to sort of focus on, again, the, this kind of higher level cognition, which is not managing a process in a, in a research lab, but, um, you know, which scientists aren't always, you know, kind of uh, set up to do in the first place in, 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 our, in our upbringing, um, but rather focus on the, the subject matter that they're interested in. So, you know, biomedicine and, um, you know, uh, all these other uh, uh, areas of, of inquiry. Um, so the idea here with, with regard to, to you know, version control and software development is instead of going through this, this very linear process of let's generate a hypothesis, um, let's uh, you know, design, design an experiment, have the right methodology, collect the data, analyze the data, report a result, and then you know, um, rinse and repeat. And um, why not have branching processes off of that? Why not open it? So part of it, I think, is about transparency. But part of it is not just opening it in the sense of letting others be aware of what you're doing, but building the kind of automation into the system that allows someone to start with your hypothesis and quickly spawn off um, another experiment to test it in a different way. And, and then allow the data to be analyzed in different ways. So you could imagine branching at every part of this process. And then the other aspect is, um, and this builds off what we're doing today with citizen science. So today, you know, in a given citizen science project, um, it might be crowdsourced data collection, it might be crowdsourced data analysis, um, and we've even seen some examples of discovery. Um, but why not let people, volunteers, non-scientists, um, insert their creativity and, um, uh, and their desire to make a difference in the world into different parts of this process as we develop methods that help us to vet that input and, um, and develop ways, just like we do with the wisdom of crowd methods, to ensure that we have um, something that um, helps you know, advance rather than confuse what we're trying to do. Why not build more methods to allow people to be inserted in different parts of this process? So then we're taking hypotheses, we're exploring them in different directions simultaneously, new ideas are arising, ideas are being recombined, um, and people are contributing to this um, without having been trained in the scientific process, without necessarily being subject matter experts. Why not? Um, it looks like all the ingredients are here, we just need to put it together the right way. Yeah, in that case, I'm going to another question. Uh, it's like um, research shows that actually it's not the number of neurons uh, matter too, so much to intelligence, but more the strength and uh, number of connections. So ca can be somehow applied to a human society. Hmm. So um, yeah, I, that's a. I think that's a great question. So we're um, when we're designing these systems and we think about humans almost like neurons in a big collective brain full of people neurons. Um, then the question is, how do we connect these people together in a way that will actually do something useful? Uh, obviously, if you throw 100 people into a room, um, you know, you, you can't necessarily hope for anything useful. And usually, it's less effective than having maybe two or three people in a room. Um, so if we look at the brain and we think, what if all the neurons in the brain, what if all 80 billion neurons were connected to each other? Every single neuron connected to every other neuron. As soon as one neuron activates, all the neurons fire at once, and basically the brain has only one state. So there's no information represented in that brain. So having as many connections as possible doesn't seem to be uh, the right solution. 
Um, having no connections doesn't seem to work either because the neurons aren't communicating and there's no information being processed um, um, together collectively. But there's something in between about the number of connections and, and I think, um, you know, in the human brain, uh, we find I think there are about 10,000 connections on average per neuron. That's the magic number for the human brain. I, I haven't looked at other species. But as you pointed out, I think you, you sort of mm, kind of hinted at in your question, it's not just about the type of connection. So in, in neurons, there's sort of inhibitory connections and excitatory. Um, so when a neuron receives a message, it might be a message that says turn off or, another, or it might be a message that, turn, that says turn on. And, you know, there might, there might be some nuances there, but that's the basic idea of how neurons work. Obviously, humans have much more interesting, complex, and sophisticated ways of communicating that could all be leveraged in support of information processing. So it's not just how many connections, but also who do we connect, in what ways, what patterns of connection do we create, and what sorts of information do we want flowing um, between humans in order to architect or engineer a certain outcome, which is probably, uh, uh, you know, in any goal-directed system would be, would be solving a problem or achieving um, some purposeful goal that, that's hopefully beneficial to society. Okay, we got uh, one more question. It's from Facebook uh, this time. And so are there any uh, stall catcher, uh, catchers players in Lithuania? Aha. <laughs> um, well, uh, I can tell you for certain that there are because um, my co-founder on the Eyes on Elves project, uh, um, who actually happens to be in this room uh, with us, uh, is uh, Egla Maria Ramanauskaita. And um, and and I and I, I happen to know she plays, although um, I'm not sure her score is as high as mine. Um, <laughs> but uh, but I haven't checked in a while. So um, there. Oh, and uh, and uh, and my other colleague Vika is in the in the room as well from from here. So so there's a this project has a very strong uh, Lithuanian presence, and um, and we've actually uh, we ran an international catchathon. Um, where we had teams competing from 16 or 17 countries on six continents. Uh, we would have actually had Antarctica as well, with the South Polar Expedition, uh, but we didn't let them know in time, and they have uh, very strict rules about how they use their bandwidth. They said, okay. next time, give us a little more notice. So we, we would like to try to, to achieve the seven-continent objective eventually. In any case, uh, two of the teams that participate in this, in this international uh, competition of stall catchers, um, this Alzheimer's game, uh, were in uh, were from Lithuania. One is in uh, was a Vilnius-based Vilnia, uh, team, and the other was uh, I don't know if I'm saying this right, Kaunas. Uh, Kaunas. Yes. Uh, and uh, and I think actually both teams were were ranked very highly and 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 won some part of the competition. So um, so I guess the answer is yes. People are <laughs> playing stall catchers and they're doing very well. Yes. Okay, yeah, and we got another question is, uh, so you were talking about like AI can be combined with people. So it's what is the relationship between AI and, and people's input? Is there some feedback? Uh, does AI learns from people? Yeah. I'm not exactly sure about which part of uh, uh, your research it is, but. <laughs> yeah, I, so I mean, in a general sense, um, these things can be combined in many different ways. So you could have, um, a machine-based system that has a few humans inserted in the loop in key places uh, that's it's dominated by machine-based processes 
um, you could um, could have it the other way around, like in these crowdsourcing systems where you just have this kind of um, this basic platform that combines answers from different people and keeps track of things. But there are some interesting in-between options for this as well. Um, so there's this um, kind of research called distributed uh, agent architectures or distributed agent systems. Um, and um, this tends to be automated systems. So um, you know there are these these uh, these things called prediction markets where you you have uh, you know different people kind of voting about different outcomes in the world, and then uh, again it's the wisdom of crowds that that the the sort of outcomes that people are investing in helps uh, actually give you a, a prediction about world events. So um, I so some work has been done about what happens if you do a combination of artificial intelligence agents and human agents in one of these prediction markets where you know the people and the machines don't know if it's other people or machines voting with them or against them in these systems and how do you tune the characteristics of the machines to work with the people to improve the predictive accuracy of the systems beyond what a prediction market with say only humans was able to do yeah so uh on that topic, uh, there are some uh, researchers and philosophers uh, slightly concerned about the evolution of AI. So how can uh, like human computing help that? Right, right. So there's, there's definitely this opportunity um, to, um, to have the human input um, in human computation systems help support AI development in the way I mentioned before, where you, you observe the human behavior in the system and then you try to replicate that with the automated systems. Um, uh, you know, another way we do it is, is, is as we're doing in the Eyes on Else project. So, so we have lots of humans doing classification on blood vessels. And if we want to train a machine learning algorithm to do that, we need a data set where we have the input and the um, analyzed output coming from the humans. And then we, we insert that into a machine uh, learning classifier. In other words, the AI system, we train the AI system from all these human data. And that allows us to hopefully build um, you know, a system that will make predictions that are more like the ones that humans make. Um, so, um, uh, th but there's definitely, I think there are, there, are, there are lots of potential feedback loops to examine between um, humans and machines. There are these um, uh, genetic algorithms, for example, where the idea is that um, um, you're you're sort of it's about taking ideas and treating them like genes. You have an idea and you you mutate it, um, and so you have several sort of random mutations of this original idea that that hopefully solves a problem, and then um, you try to pick the best one and then move forward with that one. So. Um, Machines are often good at, at coming up with the mutations, but not always good at picking the best one to move forward with. So then you ask a human, what's you know, which one should we move forward with? So that's another another way. So uh, I'm just uh, going to make sure. So which way do you, do you get the uh, information about blood vessels? Is it like a, a MRI or uh, which way it is? <laughs> yeah, yeah. What's the technique for yes. for, for collecting the the blood vessel data? Um, so this is this is really the the, the sort of the, the the breakthrough that created the new problem. Um, the the biomedical researchers at Cornell um, in the Schaefer Nishimura lab, they actually came from a background of physics, and they they created these laser based techniques to 
to do the in vivo, the in vivo imaging, the live imaging of the mouse brain. Um, it's two photon electron microscopy okay. is is the basic um, method. Um, I think they have their own uh, special way of doing this that that um, that allows us to to you know be able to image in, uh, the the live blood flow uh, through the brain. Yes, and my question is: Are you searching for better or alternative microscopy methods in order to increase signal to noise ratio of the images? Uh, can it uh, increase computer ac accuracy? Oh, it's a great question. I mean, it's the old problem: garbage in, garbage out. You know, you 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 can only uh, 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 you know produce a result um, as good as the data. So I think we're if if there's if there's someone out there who who has a, a better way to do this that increases the signal to noise level um, and that's looking at the vessels um, and the properties of the vessels that are the ones that, that we're interested in, I'm, I'm sure we'd welcome that opportunity to improve the data quality. Okay, so um, now I have a question which is uh, not so stronger related is, hmm. uh, so you work on also on uh, connection both between uh, in computation, but also uh, you do research about uh, uh, connections between people. So uh, could you give examples when uh, collaboration uh, helps, like in experimental setting or in, in our society? Hmm. Where, you mean simple collaboration without the help of machines or? or? Uh, could, could be both. I mean, if there is some synergy uh, yeah. in some cases. Right. So I, I mean, and, and I'm not sure. So please let me know if you know if this isn't what you're asking. Um, at the Human Computation Institute, we um, we try to collect diversity. Um, there's um, this kind of um, a belief, also inspired by human computation systems, that um, it's kind of like a you know genetic diversity that 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 it, it, you get a survival advantage because of the different pieces that are brought to the puzzle. Um, so we have cognitive scientists, we have computer scientists, um, we have um, you know behavioral scientists, economists, psychologists uh, involved in this kind of work. Um, there's a lot of stuff in computer-related fields like human-computer interaction, uh, because obviously the, the the junction, the interface between the humans and the computers can be very important in in many very interesting ways, actually, um, including time scale, and. Um, uh, we even look at animal behavior. We we derive inspiration. You know, we look at swarm theory. We look at the eusocial insects. Um, we we have some um, you know uh, bee experts who have contributed to our work uh, because uh, you know in nature this is uh, one of the great examples of collective intelligence is looking at at some of the behaviors of insects that that work together. Um, a nice example of of what I think of as evolutionary um, innovation. Is there? There's a kind of ant that, um, when they need to cross a river, either to get away from a predator or to move towards a new food source, they will connect to each other into this kind of a matrix, um, so that they can float across the river together and get to the other side. So they basically build a, a raft out of themselves. And the only problem with this method is that there's a cost associated with it, which is if you happen to be one of the unfortunate ants who's on the bottom of the raft, you drowned sometimes before you get to the other side. Um, so there's another kind of ant um, that seems to have come up with a, a more successful method of doing this. Instead of forming a raft, they form a sphere. 
and when the sphere goes into the water, it starts to roll around. So no ant is in the water for too long, and they all get get to the other side without drowning. Um, so uh, I, I I often uh, you know derive inspiration from from that 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 even even in nature we we see a, a progression of technology. So uh, what kind of experiments have you done on on people to to like see what kind of collaboration is is is, is the best or in some like games experiments? Mm. So um, so so before I mention my own work in this space, there's an interesting study that um, that came out of um, Carnegie Mellon uh, University and, and MIT in the U.S. where um, they were looking at group intelligence. So they had two different, uh, um, sorry, no, so, 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 the, so the, they were all different groups of people, but what they did, each group was something like six people in a group. And they were trying to figure out um, what characteristics of these people resulted in in uh, um, a higher group intelligence. So what does group intelligence mean? They were saying, we have a problem to solve, and as a group, you need to solve this problem. So these, these small groups would self-organize and work together to solve some kind of maybe an analytic problem. And, um, and then what they did is they actually measured the intelligence using IQ of each person in, in each one of these groups. And then they came up with a measure of group intelligence based on their ability to solve the problem, how quickly and how effectively they solve the problem. So what they found was that um, some groups um, had uh, you know, a, a lower group intelligence, a lower group IQ than other groups. And when they looked at the members of, of these groups, um, in some cases, you would see that the individuals in the group, the group that had the lower intelligence, the individuals actually had a higher intelligence than individuals that had a higher group intelligence. And, um, and so they couldn't explain this difference on the basis of IQ alone. In fact, IQ, individual IQ didn't seem to matter at all. Then they looked at the social intelligence of the people in each group, which speaks to the strength of the connections when we we're talking about neurons and connections. And what they discovered is that it's more important for this group IQ to have really strong connections among members of the group than to have weaker connections, even if the individual members of the group don't have as high of an IQ. Um, so this was actually inspirational for, for um, some of the work that we did looking at um, trying to, to engineer systems that were modeled after organisms. We call this organismic computing. And the basic idea is, is trying to answer the question of, is there a way that when you, you can add more people to a group and have that group become more effective rather than less effective with each additional person. Um, so you know, if you have three or four people in a room trying to solve a problem, that might work. You add 10 more people and uh, it might get complicated. And if you have 100 people in a town hall meeting, um, you know, depending on what kinds of workflows and structures you have in place, uh, um, you might not get much, much solved. Um, so, so how do we do this? How do we increase? In fact, we, we were even more ambitious than that. Um, we were trying to ask the question of, is there a way so that each additional person adds more value than the last person? So when you add the 100th person to the group, they're actually adding more value than, than, than the 99th person. Um, so our model is, is, is a single organism, an animal, a human, um, for example. And to say, um, 
how do we get a bunch of people to, you know, behave uh, the way an organism does? And and our our idea was to try to implement using technology some version of shared sensing. In other words, um, if we're in the same um, kind of group, that my sensory experience would become part of yours, and yours would become part of mine. Uh, collective reasoning that we're we're thinking about problems together in effective ways, and coordinated action that my actions are sensibly related to your actions. So easier said than done, of course. But we um, we came up, you know, we we um, uh, we kind of picked a starting point and we pursued it, and um, and we tested this out in a, in a video game context. And what we found was that um, with the very smaller groups, having that kind of special augmentation of sharing our sensory experience and 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 those other things I described, um, it wasn't actually uh, very helpful that there were few enough connections among the members of the small group that it was easier to just use um, you know our normal uh, language, just talking to each other and solving the problem that way. Um, and learning to to behave in these other ways and trying to combine your sensory experience with mine actually um, made it more confusing. But once we got into the very large groups, 100, 150 people, and we, and we used this kind of augmentation, we discovered the opposite effect, which is that um, we actually did see that compared to the smaller groups, um, the larger groups were more effective when they had this kind of augmentation. So there is this sort of cost-benefit analysis that as the size of the group increases, then it's more important to develop these methods of sort of coordinating um, you know, the experience and the behavior of the members of the group. So do you have any ideas how a real big group of people could uh, coordinate and, how, uh, and uh, like share information, like in, in near country level? Yeah, yeah, and, or country or world, right? Yes, I mean, exactly. So, so, I mean, that's one of the things I love about uh, the Eyes on Owls project is we, we have this really shared kind of problem and we're, we're working together with the International Catchathon as a globe, such a wonderful feeling that everybody cares about this and they're working together across um, you know, different political ideas, different geographic boundaries. So how do we build huge, uh, massive, effective problem-solving systems and um, using human computation? So um, I think there are lots of, of possible approaches and, and it won't be clear uh, which one is going to work until we start trying some things. And we have begun to try pieces of these things, and it starts to point us in a particular direction. But I can mention a few possibilities. So one is what I would call massively distributed problem solving. And that's and when we've kind of uh, we've begun to look into this. That's where you say, this is where we are today. Here's our current state. And then this is our goal state. So our current state is, um, you know, the climate uh, uh, is changing, and our goal state is for the climate to become stable again. Um, or maybe our, our, our goal state is for the climate to return to where it, it began. Um, then you have this potential solution space in between where people can start to dot that space with different ideas of their own. But then, um, so it's kind of a collaborative problem solving space. And, and, and then um, people can vet, uh, you could have 100 people evaluate someone's idea and have sort of a wisdom of crowds evaluation of that. 
and give people mechanisms to, you know, you can imagine sort of a network graph with these nodes that represent intermediate states between a, a, a current state and a solution. Um, so, you know, someone might plug in an inter intermediate state and say that before you can get clim the climate to go back to where it was, you have to stop it from changing in the first place in the direction it's going. And then, okay, so now we have kind of an intermediate goal. And then, um, you know, folks would plot out different paths to these intermediate goals. So, so that's kind of one general uh, approach to the problem. Um, another approach, um, um, sort of a more general approach, uh, is to just say, so take Wikipedia as an example. Right, so so Wikipedia um, is a human computation system. We uh, were it's basic it's basically um, collaborative document generation. So um, I refer to it as documents rather than knowledge because it we haven't encoded it as knowledge yet. So for it to be encoded as knowledge means that you should be able to query Wikipedia ask a question of it, and it can give you an answer. It can't give you an answer, but it could find a, an article that might have the answer you want. So I think the next step is, is maybe a, a knowledge-based version of, of, of Wikipedia that's collaborative. But ultimately, I think, going back to this idea that we want to have the most faithful model of the world around us, is why not tap into the expertise of all the people in the world and the creativity of those people, um, to generate a, a working, you know, sort of a simulated model of the world. Not, not articles in Wikipedia, but something where you could test it, where you could probe it, and you could say, try this out and watch what happens to it. Everything that we need in order to create that kind of a system exists today. We just need to try it. Yeah, uh, I have another question, which uh, I recently got. It's regarding Alice's uh, project. Uh, wouldn't uh, it make more sense uh, for AI to uh, to make initial selections and use people to correct uh, AI's results, so AI would become better and better? So let me see if I got that right. So the idea is use AI to make the initial prediction, have the humans provide sort of a, a feedback, yes, exactly. uh, and then improve the AI based on that. Well, I think that's a great idea, and I and I'm pretty sure there are some systems that do something very much like that. Um, in fact, um, training a machine learning algorithm kind of works that way because when we give training data to such an algorithm, we have what we call a teaching input, which means when we're training it, we already know what the correct answers yes. are. So the machine learning system will produce an output, and if it's right, because we know the answer, then we'll kind of give it a, a virtual pat on the head and say, yep, good job. Uh, if, it's, if it's incorrect, then uh, we'll give that feedback as well. Um, and in some kinds of machine learning, like uh, certain backpropagation neural networks, we, what we'll do is we'll, we'll do something a little more sophisticated and kind of clever, which is we'll say, okay, all these nodes that were responsible for the, for the wrong answer, they need to be sort of penalized in proportion to how they contributed to that incorrect answer. So we'll kind of weaken their link for answering that question, but maybe strengthen their link for a different question. It's almost like searching out expertise. Um, so I think it's a very, uh, uh, it's an insightful question. Um, yeah, and uh, can it be applied in Alzheimer's research? Uh, or what is the exact problem why machines still cannot like fully understand it? <laughs> right, right. Um, so I think, I think the fundamental problem in, in many machine learning systems um, today 
And uh, actually, there's a nice example in driverless cars that, that I'll mention. But it's basically that, that we can't program machines to be able to, um, to recognize things that they've never, that they're not programmed to recognize. Um, so this is the, the fundamental problem in making a discovery. Discoveries arise because humans see something they're not familiar with and they recognize the significance of that thing. And that's the key. I mean, a computer can say, yeah, this is different, this is anomalous, but it doesn't know what to do beyond that. Um, uh, so Nissan Corporation, you know, the car manufacturer, uh, is creating their own fleet of driverless cars uh, like Google. and. Um, and so their solution to the problem that the AI system in the car cannot handle situations it's never been programmed to handle. So, you know, the, the car um, drives up to a construction site and there are cones in different places and the lines on the road don't make sense because they're changing and, and the signs are wrong and, and the, the car says, I don't know what to do here. So if you let the car just kind of try to guess and figure it out, if you're a human, you might not want to do that. So Nissan's solution is have the car um, send its telemetry, you know, basically call a call center full of humans and say, this is what my situation looks like. This is the information I have available to me. I don't know how to, to address this. What should I do? And the humans send the telemetry back. An actual human being looks at it and says, oh, I've been in that situation before, or I understand the situation. So scene understanding is a big problem in, in computer vision. How do you make sense informationally about a scene. So we get the humans to do that part because they can do that today. So 99% of the time, the driverless car is able to um, save us the labor of driving. But that 1% of the time um, where it cannot figure it out, then you look to that human partnership. Okay, do we have any more questions? Okay, so I think, thank you for your interview. Okay, thanks very much. <laughs>